You're listening to And hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Good Pop Culture Club, a pop culture discussion podcast about all the good pop that gets us through our days. It is um, episode, I guess, is it six? Episode six. It's been six already? That's half a dozen. We are one week into Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, and I am already about to die. I'm so exhausted. <laughs> and you two are doing mainly like solely asian stuff like so you should be exhausted whereas i've been having to pick and choose it's also just like when it's apa his heritage month and there's all these events but really all you want to do is sit in like a bathtub and eat a haagen dazs bar while you're playing animal crossing but then you feel guilty because you're not watching like this very important but sad sad documentaries about oppression and injustice and and yes ultimately the triumph of like a community and like the resilience of a community but it's just like i just wanna eat my haagen dazs bar i mean do my retweets count like is that (laughs) yeah yes yes. that used to be enough but now that everything is digital and so there are no borders no borders exist in the world anymore like we have to be everywhere and support everything and as you know jess and i work for organizations that do a lot of organizing and because we're the organizers a lot of people want to jump in now like hey we would like to partner with you please answer our emails right now (laughs) it's it's seven o'clock on a saturday i don't want to Oh, those voices you hear are my co-hosts. We have self-proclaimed professional Asian-American Jess Ju. What up? And also culture editor Han Wen. <sighs> Hi. <laughs> That's We should change the name of the podcast to Three Tired Asians. <laughs> I don't know about you, but this week has just been like, I've felt more tired than I have ever felt ever. My eyes are tired. My brain is tired. My body is tired. It's just like, I think... These last few months of just staring at screens is finally catching up to me because my eyes have been hurting the last few days. Yeah, and it's almost the psychological reaction I have on a Zoom call, no matter if it's even a fun Zoom call or even recording with you guys. Something feels... I get this little twinge of it. Either It's either anxiety or like dread when I have to go on a Zoom call after like 5 p.m. Because it's just like, <laughs> oh, this is work. But it's not work. Well, I mean, you're you're right, actually. There's been there's an author out there who had written about it, basically saying that anytime you look at a screen, even though you know it's not work, like let's say if you're, you know, going through Instagram or doing a Zoom call, but your body doesn't know the difference. So it's been trained to see screens as work. And so, yeah, you're still exhausting yourself. Um, It's yeah, yeah, I believe it. When you're building your island Animal Crossing, yes. you're doing work. No, Unpaid no, labor. That is, that, ironically, <laughs> that work has become a recreation. And now, um, you know, like even watching, t- it's also funny because, you know, as professional Asians, working ad- adjunct to the media or entertainment field, sometimes you have to watch like a TV show for work, <laughs> which sounds really fun. And Han, I'm sure you have many feelings about this. Sounds great, but you're just like... I, I don't really want to right now, but like, ah, oh, I have a deadline or uh, I need to like, you know, I just need to know what's going on in this film. If there's any red flags or any kind of things I need to bring up. So you're just like, it almost takes the enjoyment out of it. Yeah. You can't watch it, anything passively if it is for work. Um, you actually have to pay attention and engage that part of your brain that like really thinks about like how it can, extend like you you can extend the conversation so yeah it it's actually working i've been doing this for what like 15 years and so that's a lot of tv and movies that are work and so even when it's purely for fun sometimes i'm like maybe i should just read a book or go for a hike mm. not this weekend because the trailers are open and everyone's gonna be i am there going to yeah avoiding the catch Lerona. oh man speaking of watching stuff for kind of not a job <laughs> we all watched the half of it alice Wu's new film on netflix uh, and we're going to talk all about it um, later on this in this episode 
But before we get to that, uh, we start off every episode with a pop culture roundup of what we've been watching to um, get through these COVID days. The COVID days. It's the name of my memoir at the end of this this period. Uh, Jess, what's popping? Okay. I'm like 20 years behind the boat. I get it. But I watched The Rock for the first time because it was playing on cable. And wow, it was... Now we're talking about the Rock, the Michael Bay classic action yes. movie, not <laughs> the Rock. Yes, we are talking Dwayne about the Rock, the, Rock the movie, uh, the film, as opposed to Dwayne the Rock Johnson, who I also love. I was going to say you'd be pretty bad at your job if you've never seen Dwayne. The I Rock love Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> Don't get me wrong; like I, I owe him a lot because um, I watched the Tooth Fairy on a mid on a red eye flight to Washington, Washington D.C. in. 2010 and that was the only thing that like saved me from massacring these like sixth graders on the same <laughs> flight who had never flown before so you know, I have a lot of respect for The Rock he's a very entertaining movie star but The Rock no. the movie starring Nick Cage and Sean Connery and Ed Harris who as a villain was not wrong um, directed <laughs> by Michael Bay and produced I believe by Jerry Bruckheimer um, what, what can... Like this movie has been joked about in like other shows, other films. You know, I, I've been aware of its existence and kind of it's like a ridiculous action movie, but enjoyable action movie. And let me tell you, it it not only lived up to the hype, it exceeded the hype. And I think we need to bring back the '90s style Jerry Bruckheimer esque action movie. Maybe, maybe in a different form, like maybe not a direct copy, but like this. The bigness of everything, the ridiculousness of everything is something I truly enjoyed. Yeah, but also it was a more restrained Michael Bay. This isn't <laughs> like a, Bad Boys for true. Life, Transformers Michael Bay. This is like he still had like maybe he didn't have as much of a budget. It was back when people just didn't throw money at him. But it was the action scenes were big, but they weren't well, like. Well, I'm wondering how much it co- I'm assuming they actually shot it on Alcatraz Island. I actually don't know. Uh, maybe get, should we do some like half-ass internet research right now? But I was like, it can't be cheap to like it's a national park. Like you got, I'm sure you got pay like fees and stuff. And uh, but it, it was it was like yeah, maybe he's grounded because CGI wasn't grounded. Quote unquote grounded. Michael Bay is the rock, <laughs> but it was it was it was so over the top. Um, Nick cage you know screaming every everyone in this movie like dialing it up to 15 and staying there was wonderful i um, love this era of like nick cage as action star right because you know nick cage now is like nick cage being nick cage but back then he was he was the rock of that era right he did this movie he did con air like he was I mean, like you can't go wrong with nick cage like even in his youth his some of his movies are amazing i think like if you haven't seen Moonstruck, watch Moonstruck. It's awesome. He's actually such a strange... Looking back, I find it such a strange turn that he became, like, the action star of the 90s. Like, not very unexpected. When, when you know, he's not necessarily <laughs> built or, like, super sportsman-y or athletic, which I guess is the point, you know? His character, Goodspeed, is kind of like this... Like, he's the underdog. They're like, oh, he's not going to make it out alive. And, of course, Sean Connery as the ex-British intelligence, um, wrongfully imprisoned uh, prisoner of the United States government is, like, the badass, like, having to, like, cart him around and save him. But, my God, Mm -hmm. like, just, just that, just that standoff scene between the two marine corps like the mercenary ex-marines and the marines that are supposed to take down the mercenary ex-marines and they're all like the stance down and harris is like i have the higher ground like you can't win the shootout and then like the rock falls and not not the rock as in the alcatraz but a <laughs> rock falls and like it starts like this huge bloody shootout and like blood is spattering everywhere and it's just i mean yeah that was the moment the movie turned from a heist movie to a diehard movie right from like an insertion like special teams movie to like oh crap now it's just two of yeah. them and they need which to is i just don't understand after seeing this I, I i mean this is a movie that's generally beloved or in the narrative is generally beloved <laughs> by men and i'm just like 
why why are women considered the more dramatic gender because this is like the most extra shit i have ever seen there's just a bunch <laughs> of aggro dudes yelling at each other and like holding guns and like firing phallically at each other i'm just like this is this is wild this is not grounded in any reality <laughs> I mean, and it's not even like peak Nick Cage, too. You're looking at like maybe like glass half full Nick Cage. Like, have you seen Face Off yet? I have not. Um, Maybe that'll be my next good pop culture next week's. Directed by John Woo. John Woo. Yeah. So like a lot of these films, you know, I'm aware of them. I even kind of know enough about them to get the jokes that, again, people make a lot of jokes or references or tropes. I know John Woo loves doves, like shots of doves flying (laughs) across the screen, but um, yeah, I just feel like I had like this, I have a pop culture gap, you know, child of immigrants and they're too busy, mm. you know, working and trying to put food on the table and earn money. So yeah, there's a period of time. But is there a John Woo gap though? Because I feel like those are movies that your dad must have watched because my dad watched tons of John Woo movies, like all the Chong Yun-Fat I'm ones. sure he did. And I'm sure I just didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, and I, I think maybe it was not the, I mean, I'm. I'm a little younger than you, Marvin. So, you know, I was fairly, I was very young in the 90s. So I probably (laughs) not the best practice to let, you know, a small impressionable child watch a bunch of Hong Kong shootout action films. So, uh, (laughs) but I I thoroughly enjoyed this and I'm sure I should, I'll take, maybe I'll take some of this time to explore the full depth of the Nicolas Cage canon. Yeah, at least you have a taste for it now. Is The Rock in the Criterion Collection, guys? <laughs> I doubt it. I think it is, right? <laughs> what? No, I think The Rock is in the I Criterion don't... Collection. I'm not making... Of all no the way. Michael Bay's, it is that would qualify. Over Armageddon? <laughs> I think it has... I think Armageddon is also in it. <sighs> guys, guys, it is in the Criterion it's Collection. It's in the Criterion Collection. Those are, I mean, those are the classic Michael Bay's when you talk about Michael Bay, so... I mean, they named a big, you know, in the Paramount Studios, they named a big thoroughfare uh, on the lot after him. So, you know. I mean, he did make them boatloads of cash. Props to you, so. Michael Bay. Han, what's popping with you? Um, I might have mentioned this another time, but just another shout out. Like, Jimmy O. Yang has his first stand-up special on Amazon today. Um, Salon.com mm. did an interview with him. It was a video interview, so he's very funny. So you should look out for that. Um but uh, and I mean, look, like he talks about what soap he uses and like his his dad, who is an actor now, because he's like, how hard can it be if you're an actor and all that stuff? So it's like <laughs> actually really hilarious, um, this interview. And I say this because it's not me who did the interview. Um, mm. So I can say that. Um, but the thing I've actually been watching lately is uh, bring it back to Brian, who uh, from back when we were talking about Parasite. He was saying that he was watching the most recent season of um, Terrace House, which was one I hadn't dived into yet. So I started this past weekend and out of the 36 episodes so far, I am on episode 23. Uh, so I wonder why I've been like losing sleep. Maybe that's why. <laughs> but Terrace House is such a low stakes, like lo-fi watching experience, though. Oh, but what I love. OK, so what what's good about this season? Um most seasons, but I feel like this season does it really well, is all the cooking. Mm. Like, because, you know, m- most of the, the action is in front, is at the dining table and or the kitchen. And all those domestic things become like a huge conversation. But even more so this year, because there's a kid in there called Ruka. He's 20 years old and he is useless. <laughs> um But in a very endearing way, like he definitely has had everything handed to him. So in order to impress, you know, all all the girls have been giving him advice because he's like trying to impress this one older girl who's like 28. And they were like, you know, it's because we do all these things for you and you just take it. And so we treat you like a kid and you continue to be accepting that treatment. So you need to start being, you know, like a man, whatever. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to cook. So he decides to make what he calls carbonara. So he puts the pasta in the water to boil, which is great. And then he cracks an egg into the water. As one does for carbonara. Yeah. Right. And then he gets uh, broccoli and he uses the scissors and cuts it and puts it into the water also. So he basically wants to do a one pot (laughs) meal. 
the pasta and the broccoli turn out fine because, you know, they're in water. But the egg, of course, got cooked in the water and he poured it out when he, you know, he made the pasta and he strained it. So and then on top of that, he just starts to eat it and there's no sauce. There's no flavor, no salt, pepper. And so they're watching him eat it. And he's like, they're like, is there a flavor? He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he keeps eating. Like, why don't you even put on like some soy sauce or something? Anyway, so all of his cooking exploits are just hilarious to me. And there's a lot of talk. And uh, spoiler alert, one of the housemates uh, ends up being an Italian guy. So he knows how to cook. And yeah, there's just so much pasta, so much soba. <laughs> there's so much talk about food on this show. Like I actually was inspired by Ruka um, to make some uh, mentaiko, uh, spicy caro, uh pasta for my dinner tonight. Yeah. But, yeah. I'm excited to to catch up with it. So far, uh, I think the point was when Brian mentioned it, he, was, he wanted to see when it caught up to the whole mm-hmm. COVID stuff. Um, right now, I'm only around like September of wow. last year. So yeah. maybe October. I um, I guess in my my own Nick Cage shame moment is I have not caught up at all with Terrace House since the first season. I, I haven't even finished the first season yet. So I have a... Oh my god, you're missing so many uh, people because <laughs> I mean, obviously, like on on Legion, um, Lauren Tsai, she's from mm-hmm. the Hawaii season. She became a guest star and actually a really great role on there. And she's also like a comic book artist yeah. and stuff like that. So, but she she's American, um, Chinese yeah. American, the- I think. Um, but she taught herself Japanese and then watched Terrace House to to uh, wow. brush up on it. So I thought that was really cool. <laughs> right? So now I'm like, so for me, I'm just like, oh, maybe I should learn Japanese. Japanese is kind of hard, though. Like, I took, a, I took, half well, a, my I took like both two learned, weeks in college. I was like, nope, I'm taking Chinese because I already know it. Well, both of my brothers have learned enough chi- uh, Japanese, but they actually did take some classes. And then both of them have done business mm. in Japan. So for me, I was just like, look, I know the... F- food words basically <laughs> so maybe if i can just give myself a uh, rudimentary education then i can be just as good as Ruka. that's true yeah the great thing about me not having watched terrace house yet is i can still watch all of terrace house for the first time so terrace house is forever and it will take you back <laughs> to being in your well there are a few people in their 30s but youthful 20s for the most part and they're all beautiful so we can you know pretend we're about all beautiful like they are and uh <sighs> Yeah, and and just being unsure. Were we ever in our youthful twenties? Sure. <laughs> oh yeah, I was hot. <laughs> oh yeah. No, uh, it was my birthday recently, and my friends very lovingly uh, sent me a bunch of old photos of us. These are my friends from high school, and I was like, "Damn!" Like, you know, it was. <laughs> I was hot. I didn't know it at the time, but you know, I was. I was a little hotty. I mean, it's still hotty, but it was like, dang, like youth. Every you don't know what you got till a little bit later. You know, hindsight, and you're always awkward. <laughs> I feel like your awkward age is like actually like six, like fifteen to like twenty five. Is your mm. is your awkward period? Your decade of <laughs> maybe awkwardness. more, depending on. We can talk all about that in our in our feature <laughs> segment because this this movie has it in space. Yes. Yeah, so so yeah, but but on the record, I was hot. Still am, but was very was a was a big cutie in high school. It's now been um recorded for eternity on this podcast. Put it on my tombstone. <laughs> she was hot. <laughs> so, Marvin, what's popping with you? So, besides spending every waking moment working on Heritage Month stuff, something that's been fun, also Heritage Month related, but fun is um. So, I also host a book club podcast called Books and Boba. That's part of the um potluck collective and we've been doing this book challenge for the month of may so every day we recommend a different book written by an asian author for a specific category you can check it out by following the hashtag um, asian books challenge um you see everyone who's participating recommending books um so i think on wednesday our challenge was a sci-fi novel written by an asian author and my recommendation there was um, Severance by Ling Ma, which is a book that I read last year. And it got me thinking a lot about Severance by Ling Ma. Han, Jess, have you read this book yet? It's literally in the trunk of my car right now. A a very <laughs> voracious reader friend of mine gave it to me literally the day 
before the shelter in place order came. He's like, oh, this is very <laughs> relevant right now. And I'm like, thank you. I will not be reading this, but I will take it um, with the, what, what would you call it? The, the foolish optimism that I will crack it open one day. Maybe when we're well past this whole global pandemic. <laughs> It's a book that, like, it's speculative fiction, right? It's a zombie apocalypse book that doesn't feel so speculative now in our current climate. And it's very, um, and um, so for people who want the quick and dirty pitch, it's basically um, a pandemic that started in a factory in China spreads all across the world, causing um, basically a zombie apocalypse. But in this world, the zombies aren't like aggressive and violent. What happens is the zombies become locked in routines. So you have zombies that are like folding clothes at a store every day or like typing. They kind of just become locked in their daily routines and can't get out of it. And then they start to get emaciated. And so you have people that are like decomposing but still folding clothes at the gap and things like that. And it's about everything leading up to the pandemic during it and then after. It takes place in like dual timelines, focusing on the same person, a woman named Candace Chen. She's one of those people, and I'm sure we all know people like this, who fell into a job and just kept doing it because they were good at it, even though it didn't offer them any personal um, like joy or anything. Yeah. Um, so her job is basically she produces Bibles. So she like sources raw materials from China, sources the binding factory, and they print Bibles to ship to America to sell to you know, the Bible Belt. And as the pandemic starts spreading... Basically, her company starts like instituting social distancing, um, saying, "Okay, you can you can work from home, but if you agree to come to the office and work this amount of time, we'll give you a bonus." So that's how we know it's fiction because that's not actually happening. <laughs> <laughs> they have to come to work; they don't even get the bonus. So yeah, <laughs> but um, during this time, Ling writes about news reports of the government addressing the pandemic, downplaying the risks, people working but growing wary about their exposure. And then very slowly, society starts crumbling around Candace and, and she's so she forced to, and she's forced to, you know, take action. It's really interesting because it's really interesting as a piece of speculative fiction, Severance kind of really accurately portrays what happens um, to a capitalist society as a global pandemic takes over the world. And it's really interesting to think about how Ling Ma was able to predict how our society would react to a global pandemic and how eerily similar it is to what she wrote about in Severance, even though we're not dealing with a zombie. Well, I mean, I think that's why speculative fiction has always existed. It's not just about like playing with a fun, like out there idea, but more of being a commentary of our times. Like all of Black Mirror is speculating on our reliance on certain technology, right? But at, mm -hmm. like just recently, Charlie Brooker, who you know created Black Mirror, said, "I'm not writing season six anytime soon because right now it's too bleak in the world for Black Mirror." <laughs> and so, yeah, like he already did enough bleakness, and now that the bleakness is here, he's like, "I can't write it right now." So, yeah, this yeah. is all science fiction where <laughs> some science fiction is just really fun. You know, it's like a Western with, you know, spacesuits and stuff like that. But most of them have some sort of commentary about society in there that's a little bit like cynical and grim. So I, I think this is yeah. a, it, in line. <laughs> I, I do need to read the book. It's been on my good sh uh, read shelf for a while. <laughs> just I wasn't yeah. in the mood and I don't know if I'm in the mood right now. So. It's not exactly escapist fiction, but it is very real because it is about a the main character is a millennial doing millennial things. And you'll like, like when I read it, I saw a lot of myself and my friends in what they did. Like there's a scene where people are having pandemic parties, right? Because, and then I was like, yep, that sounds about right. Because I remember when I was on the East Coast, we would have hurricane parties in times when we probably shouldn't be having hurricane parties. Yeah, you heard about these uh, underground pandemic parties, right? No, are people actually like? Oh yeah, yeah. so they're been to hang out. Yeah, they there are underground pandemic parties because it's kind of like, fuck you, we're just gonna have fun because it also doesn't matter. Like people, you know, just denying, and they would try to argue that it's like how in the eighties there were uh, chicken pox parties, so all the kids can get the, it 
uh, at once. But the difference, of course, is that they could survive it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that, yeah, it's so... It, it, there are definitely things that didn't work out. And then there are like underground dinner parties where certain restaurants were like on the sly um, opening. And I've heard of people breaking into gyms so they can work out. So there are a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of illicit stuff going on. And uh, I can now I, I don't know. Maybe I should read this and see like how much. Oh, my. It's just <laughs> wild. It's also the priorities of what they're breaking into <laughs> well this is also someone who doesn't go the to gym. the gym like regular like <laughs> ever um even when she should be going and even when she has a trip to like to hike machu picchu with her family and should really be training for that um <laughs> no doesn't go to the gym but it's just like there has like is there a way to just like round all these people up and you're like sure you guys can like do that but you're not allowed to ask for the services of anybody and bring risk or harm to anybody. I, you can I just ship them all to Catalina or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, my boyfriend's a healthcare worker, so mm-hmm. I'm like, hey, you guys should, if someone has like a bathing suit tan, like a fresh bathing suit tan, you guys should just not treat them. And then he's like, uh, you know, we, we're going to have to. But it's like, yeah, but like, let me just they imagine oath, a world. Jess. They took an oath. Hippocratic to, oath. To heal. I think the we tan need to or the not tan. We should we should add a line in the Hippocratic Oath about how you know like unless like this idiot is just legit trying to kill itself, uh, him him or herself, and then you know what can we do? It, it is yeah, it is interesting to me how like the irony of let's say the gym breaking into thing, because I I think the other. Well, first of all, now that we are in L.A. are experiencing certain things going to be starting to open up, right? Um, now more than ever, I'm staying in. So, <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah. Hell yeah. yes. I mean, we just lost Soup Plantation. R.I.P. to Soup Plantation. I was trying to explain to people tomatoes. yeah, why Soup Plantation was a big deal. <laughs> it's hard because it, you, have to, you have to use the word plantation. Yes, and that was it, definitely an argument. Which like, doesn't play. Um, but <laughs> I did mention coupons. Name. Yeah, it was like this magical place where I think for a lot of us, it's maybe one of the only like non-Asian restaurants our parents would gladly go to because it was a great deal. Chinese people definitely love soup. And as like a kid, it was like this magical place where like I could eat like American food and get like a little bit of everything in one sitting and I didn't have to choose. And uh, And Marvin, you know, you and I, we have our one-on-one sessions there just to, to shoot it's, the it's, shit. It's, it's where we up. go to happy hour. Yeah, it's our, it's neither of us can drink, so it's our happy hour spot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, pouring out. For those who don't know what a soup plantation is. No, don't tell um, them. Soup and tell, don't tell them. Let them live in a world where, you know, they mm. don't know what's the beauty of something they can never have again or ever have. I know. Mm. R.I.P. Soup Plantation, yeah. Sweet Tomatoes. Well, we're not here to mourn Soup Plantation. We are here to celebrate the return of Alice Wu on her latest movie on Netflix, the half of it. Pew, 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 pew. It is <laughs> wonderful. I mentioned this before, but I still haven't watched Saving Face, uh, which was Alice's first movie. Uh, I really wanted to watch it before watching this movie to see the progression, but... There just wasn't enough time, but I, I'm, it is on my list of things to watch this month since it is Asian month um, and it would make sense. Yeah. So, but uh, so maybe a little context of who Alice Wu is if for the uninitiated, but she is a writer director, made this film 16 years ago called Saving Face, which is in the Asian American indie canon. It's in the LGBTQ indie canon. It stars Joan Chen, Michelle Krusik, and Lin Chen. And Michelle Krusik's character, Wilhelmina, is a very successful doctor living in San Francisco. Her single mother gets um, pregnant out of wedlock, and her father, Will's grandfather, kicks her out. So she has to go live with Will, but Will is still in the closet to her family about her queer status her queerness. So shenanigans ensue. It's actually a very heartwarming ending. No one dies. 
just wonderful. Yeah, this was back in 2004, 2005 when like that was kind of the norm for like LGBT. Right. Movies, it was right? almost seen as like a moral sort of thing where it's like, well, too bad. Now they're, you know, the upshot is now they're <laughs> dying. You know, it's just, yeah, it was horrible. Don't you feel bad for them? The yeah, tragedy. that's how they tried you know, to make him sympathetic yeah. was to make it a tragedy, yeah. whereas they could have just made a sympathetic character. You know, it's just so ridiculous. But yeah, so yeah. it was groundbreaking for her to have a happy movie. Yeah, and just a great film. If you've ever taken any like Asian American media class or anything like that, you'd, you've probably have watched it in the curriculum. And I mean, to this day, there's not that much. I don't know if I can name another Asian American lesbian themed movie. I mean, you can say it was way ahead of its time, right? Because it, it, it was a Sundance movie. And through that, Alice was able to get more work. But um, I think um, so They Call Us Bruce, which is another podcast on our network, did a really great interview with Alice Wu. And she's done plenty of interviews talking about why it took 15, 16 years for this movie to get made. And a lot of it was just like Alice is one of those writer directors who needs to really be invested in the film personally to make it right she doesn't she's not one of those people who just does art for a paycheck or she she did she did that and she you know she was writing for hire she made you know she made a go at it and she it was but like to see another project that she wrote and directed um and you know based also on her life and her experience growing up um it was yeah it was took her another six took her 16 years to make a second film but I think it was worth the wait. Yeah, so the half of it is Alice Wu's movie starring Leah Lewis as Ellie Chu, Daniel Diemer as Paul Munsky, and Alexis Lemire as Astor Flores, the girl that they both have their eyes on. So a little heads up, we will be discussing some light spoilers for the film. So if you haven't watched it yet, um, now's a good time to go catch the film. It is available on Netflix, and it's only about an hour and 45 minutes long. So um, if you haven't watched the film, go watch it now and come back. We'll wait for you. Um, but yeah, the film is about Ellie Chu, who is a Chinese-American girl living in Squamish, uh, Squamish Washington, which um, for a town that's totally made up, you do it gets ingrained in your skull because they like say it a billion times during the entire like movie. Squamish, Squamish, yeah. Squamish. Small, rural, northwest town. Um, she, her and her father, single father, are the only are the only Asian family in town. There's there's other Aster is from a I don't want She's a pastor's kid. She's the pastor's yeah. daughter and they they do speak Spanish, but I don't they never explicitly say I mean her last um, name is her last name is Latinx. Flores. Yeah. Flores. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So Latinx yeah. but th- don't necessarily know um you know ethnic background or like national background. Um so and so you know but pretty predominantly white small town and she's definitely being bullied and is facing microaggressions though i i appreciate that the microaggressions were less like overtly racist or less violent it was more kind of like language yeah they're dumb kids they call her choo-choo train which is still very rude but but that's like anyone's name has gotten gotten made fun of the chugga chugga choo-choo like everyone had a yeah dumb name that people called them so I've gotten tons of Marvin. Yeah. Oh, that's kind of lovely. No one can make fun of my last name because that would be anti-Semitic. <laughs> so she is um, the also the smartest kid in school, at least when it comes to writing. Right. She has a pretty good side hustle going, writing everyone's papers. Um, I thought that's so low. That's really low. low. She should yeah. do at least 50. Like that's a yeah. lot of effort. Especially if she could guarantee yeah. like an A, like that is that is a fifty to a hundred dollar kind of <laughs> kind of product. Uh, but essentially, she's supporting her father, her single father. Her mother passed away of when she was in her early teens, and her father has somewhat hit a depressive slump and has. Yeah, he's in a he's in the bathrobe the entire movie. Yes, watching Except classic movies. <laughs> um, and he, they are they run the they're the station he is the station manager of the train station so uh just so she's dealing with a lot and then in comes the meet cute which in a kind of subversion of the coming of age teen romance film is with a boy named Paul Munsky but wait you ask wasn't this a film about lesbians was it <laughs> 
Yeah, so basically there's a there's it's set up as a love triangle. She's basically being a Cyrano uh for this kind of dumb but lovable uh classmate. Like a meathead. A meathead. He's literally yeah. a meathead. He his family makes sausages. So Paul asks Ellie to help him woo Aster with letters. Love letters. Yeah. Who is someone that they both are have a crush on. Even though she doesn't yes. acknowledge it even to herself early on. There's mm. a meet cute with her and Aster though, where yes. where they she drops some stuff and it's the classic like, Oh, let me help you pick it up and then, you know, the <laughs> eyes meet and there's a moment. So that one I definitely yeah. felt. Oh, the staring. Yes. The staring in this film was top notch. Yeah. Yes. Um so I, I think this is where we should caveat that. Um None of us identify as queer, so um, while we're going to be talking about the lesbian storyline of this film, uh, we also encourage you to um, seek out other queer writers and film critics who can bring you some additional nuance and insight to the conversation that we are not equipped or able to do. But what we do have insight for is the Asian-Americanness of it, <laughs> um, especially the, the relationship between Ellie and her father, uh, which I thought was really like a lot of times... Especially when you have like Asian American casting where the Chinese American person isn't necessarily Chinese. You have this thing where the kid speaks English to the parent and the parent speaks Chinese back. And to me, that's always like, I know that exists, but that's never been my experience. So to have like Ellie speak Chinese in the house was like, I thought that was huge. I was like, I've actually never seen this before. Well, and also they do explain that she wasn't born in America. So, uh, yeah. yeah, because, well, in my family, it is kind of the case. I speak English to my parents or my family members, and they speak Vietnamese back, mm. although many of them speak English, too. Um, so it's usually a mixture. Um, but, yeah, I think it was a yeah. big deal because also when I was listening to her, I was like, oh, this is so exciting to hear her actually, like, speak, <laughs> you know, Chinese. How was that? Oh, yo. Oh, her her Chinese is legit, which is amazing. Yeah. And props to Leah Lewis, who is an adoptee uh, who grew up in Florida. So I don't believe she grew up speaking Chinese. And it is yeah. very good. It's it's definitely a Chinese American accent yeah. where it's like you, it's you good in the it's good as in like it's very the levels which she's speaking the accent and the tones are all very Asian American like ABC mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah um, so it's not perfect but it shouldn't be perfect exactly because, yeah that makes yeah. sense because I know my cousins have like more of an accent um, and it it probably because they heard their peers speaking Vietnamese and then they got those accents versus like I think my mom told me that my Vietnamese accent isn't bad but mainly because I learned from her even though I'm not fluent so yeah I mean same thing with like me like I have a more Taiwanese accent when I speak my Mandarin and I think that's from kind of spending more time with my parents and my grandparents um, in in Taiwan whereas my brother um, spent more time like speaking English as a kid so his accent is a lot more heavier in the American accent. But very that relationship is just so well portrayed in that it's new it it's sweet and you can tell there's obvious affection and they care about each other, but they just can't really connect. I mean which I feel yeah. is also a very shared experience in many Asian households. Yeah, most of us connect with our parents either A through food or B, through a an experience like watching movies together. And so you don't have to talk, but you're sharing the experience and sitting side by side, and that really counts for a lot. And also, if they are the ones picking films, they are sort of like teaching you um, what things in life. Um, and I do remember, like, that's how I grew up watching foreign films, not just Asian ones, but like, you know, all sorts of foreign films. And uh yeah, I, I just, I do remember. And then, of course, same, I guess, same deal with books. Like, my mom kept buying me a book and, like, giving it to me. So, yeah, I like that that they spend, yeah. Ellie and her dad spend most of the time watching classic films together. Yeah, great taste. They definitely have a subscription to the Criterion Collection. Oh. Well, sure. Alice, who has done an interview <laughs> where she said every movie basically deals with a love triangle. Uh, and like she was just trying to shove triangles in like the sets, the costumes, everything. I mean, even Trig's name is Trig. Mm-hmm. She's just trying to, <laughs> you know, true. shove that theme of 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 love triangles everywhere she could. 
um, I did also like that because so I never had to do this for my parents because my dad has my dad's pretty good with English because he he does business so he has to like go to a lot of meetings and talk to people but I do have friends who are their parents representatives when it comes to like calling banks and paying bills you have to you have to be the adult in the household and basically call the call the utilities or like call the bank um you know when you're filing anything with like the government and yeah definitely i've been experiencing that a lot lately both my parents got furloughed in the you know in the midst of all the corona covid19 layoffs so uh, you know i had to help both of them file for edd and she's much more patient than i am with both the company and her parents um and yeah as well as just oh also just canceling all the flights you know they had which is another oh my god uh, it's another journey in itself what a good daughter Uh, i mean i'm living with them so i guess i have to like earn my keep somehow (laughs) yeah but yeah, uh, and then you know, and then the arc of hold for puppy. He's just he's like me when you people don't pay attention to him, he gets like antsy and then he like starts acting out. <laughs> Dogs really, you're you always find a dog that like is your doppelganger. That's how <laughs> the universe works. The energies find each other. Yeah, but throughout the film, there's a nice arc in their relationship. Eventually, her dad really with with Paul's. No kind of interference or pause help has really he begins to step up being the parent that she really needs and it's so sweet the end where he like feeds her because for the majority of the film you know she's like making him food or they're eating together and at the end he like packs her this big bag of food for her to take yeah doublings and he's like take this with you when you go to college like that's the conversation that's (laughs) like the entire conversation about him encouraging her to go pursue her dreams go to college he'll be fine he can he'll survive but she really needs to take care of herself and like open up now there's a moment at during that scene where there's a little translation mm-hmm. like glitch not glitch but like mistranslation of what he says and what's displayed on screen so there's a scene where he goes i didn't bring you here to the states to be like me i brought you here so you could be like more like your mom and then ellie goes you mean dead and then <laughs> the the translation says oh god i hope not but in his in what he actually says is um which means let's let's light some more incense <laughs> let's, let's pray oh, that doesn't I, I you know it's so it's i'm kind of sad that they did that because i guess they assumed people wouldn't understand the significance of lighting incense as a response yeah. to her her comment <laughs> yeah especially in, throughout the entire movie where she's being portrayed as a heathen mm-hmm. And then that that line, it made me realize that, no, they just like, how would you explain like Chinese spiritualism? It's like, it's not exactly Buddhism, but it's not exactly like, But it is like, still about know, like yeah. your ancestors and being able to yeah. communicate with them and honor them still um, because they are not in your world, but they are still reachable somehow. And so incense yeah. is definitely. I also think there's like a blanket way of operating for Chinese families, even if you don't necessarily believe in it or you don't (laughs) practice daily, you just do things to cover your bases. So, you know, (laughs) you don't invite bad things. Don't, don't, don't like ask for it. So my mom is not religious at all, but she still goes to temple once a year, just in case. And most of them are things just in case. (laughs) And most of them are superstitious. And I feel like that's a certain type of spiritualism. You know, because you're imbuing yeah. meaning in like routines and traditions and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's very similar. I do. We I don't we haven't gone really too much into the Paul friendship, but, you know, because he works for the the meat company, the butchery or whatever. And then he creates his own thing, which he's pushing on her at first called the taco sausage. Taco sausage. And then she eventually eats it. And he also gives it to her father, and it's good. And I'm just like, see, this is the ultimate sort of respect to this Chinese father. Like, you feed him, and you also spend time with him watching the movie with them. So I was just like, that's a good boy. You know, that's a good, whatever. Paul is a very good boy. I did love the bond, and we'll get to the Cyrano love story eventually. Yeah. We just got to talk about taco sausage. Like, I want to. What is? I want to yeah. try it because at first I was like, 
is it just a taco with a sausage in it? But I don't think it's as simple as that. I mean, that's what it looked like. But you're also in luck because um, Roy Choi of Kogi fame is creating, he created his own taco sausage in honor of the Halloween. Uh, as got- did Nikki Nakama, Nikki, um, what's and Naka's? Yeah, Nikki Nakayama. 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 Yeah. yeah. I, I, okay, I thought that was, first of all, brilliant, which uh, this is something that we haven't discussed yet is, so Alice Wu, first of all, shared her own braised pork over rice uh, recipe from her own family, but then also, uh, like you were saying, Roy Choi and Nikki Nakayama shared recipes that are sort of tied in with the film because they wanted us to eat and have a viewing party and i was just like this is basically the most brilliant thing because first of all it's food and it's asian but also (laughs) we are eating while watching a movie just like they do in the movie yeah that's some good synergy right there that's that's (laughs) marvin you have the business degree What, what do you call that it's um cross promotion oh not not horizontal like integration or Mm, no not exactly That's not exactly what it is. We don't need to get into it. Paul's a good boy. He does his best even when he messes up. Uh, And the relationship he forms with Ellie's dad was like, I thought was a really cool part of the movie. Like that one scene where they talk to each other in their own languages Mm -hmm. and it seems like they kind of understand each other, right? Like I thought that was a really, really good scene between two people who aren't good at talking. And you know what? That does happen a lot because... um so my best friend growing up, uh, I guess she's still my best friend, is Korean. <laughs> and so much of the time, she said that I would just respond to her mom. And I really don't speak Korean. Like, again, I just know the food words in Korean. But I was just like, <laughs> well, you kind of pick up her intonation. I figure out like one or two words. But like for the most part, I would just nod and do the right expression and response <laughs> somehow. And and I think that's kind of what you get because you know maybe that along the lines of what conversation they might be talking to you about. Because there are only so many things that he and, you know, Ellie's dad would be talking about, which is probably Ellie. You know, so yeah, yeah I, I thought that was a really sweet bond. Yeah. I think Paul and Ellie both have this great quality of empathy. And it's I think that's why they're so able to connect to one another and find, you know, their friendship. Because Paul, even though he seems like to be someone who would be able to fit in, you know, no problem in a town like Squamish, he is so kind to Ellie, even though their relationship might have started off a little more transactional. He's never cruel or mean to her. He stands up for her. And in that, that one scene where the other kids are, you know, bullying her, calling her names, making fun of her name, he like runs after them and like protects her and just like the look of shock on her face is so heartbreaking because you know she's never had that before. She's never had anyone stand up for her like that. And then the same way with Ellie and her ability to actually dissect that that conversation where they're having playing ping pong and he's she's teaching him how to talk to girls and just talk and have a conversation in general, which is both <laughs> hilarious. It's also like, Ellie, how do you even know this? Like, you don't really seem to have many friends. You don't seem to be someone who's like talking and socializing daily. But the fact that she knows how to do it and she's aware of how people react to things and how... You know, how to basically be like a sociable person even if she can't practice it was I thought was really interesting and they that just shows yeah. that they have they both have this and it it's shown in different or I think it comes down different ways but their empathy and how they can relate to people is really is really something special in this bigger town and to an extent Aster has that as well and I think that's what connects them in the triangle. <laughs> yeah, I guess we can we can move on to our discussion of the triangle. The movie starts with they it's, they did the thing that they did with uh, Five Hundred Days of Summer, where they start with saying this is not a love story, and like love is definitely involved in the story, but it's not about like romantic love in like the rom com sense of the word, right? It's not about true love. It's not about like meant to bees. Yeah, Alice uh, Alice has a really great quote that she gave to a, an interview with Logo Magazine, I believe, but. She says, I was trying to talk about those other forms of love, all the different ways you can love, some of which are sexual, some of which are romantic, and some of which are platonic. None are necessarily better than any other, but all of them have the capacities to help shape who we are and hopefully set us on the right path to become the people we really want to be. It's deep, man. Yeah, and actually, 
Paul and Ellie's connection, you're right, because in a just the run of the mill rom com, they would have realized they had feelings for each other and then it would have been there happily ever after. But instead, like, well, Paul gets sort of a mis you know, his wires crossed, he thinks he has feelings, but then once he realized that, you know, she obviously does not prefer guys, he has to kind of think about what he feels for her and it takes a while for him i mean he took a while to figure out some of the bigger philosophical things that she was teaching him and to his credit he stayed and plugged away at both until he came to his conclusion that he still loved her it just wasn't romantic and um and and it that was just so like beautifully affirming um because i don't know how how many times like in a movie there's like what we can't be friends it's like i don't want to be friends with you and i'm like ah oh. <laughs> and i love that he showed it at the end in the grand gesture that is like he runs after the train in like a callback to a scene that they they watched together where ellie was like that doesn't yeah, yeah like don't run, run after, after people on the trains <laughs> and then she was so moved by it it was it was beautiful um yeah and the other thing is yes this might not be a tra- traditional love story but i do feel like there was a plenty of romance in the movie because like we were talking about like just the looks. So there was a lot of sighing and, and gaze, the, the Ellie Chu gaze. Um, <laughs> and there was flirtation, even though Aster didn't realize who she was talking to at times. Um, so whether or not it ended in any sort of happy romantic ending for them, and we're not sure where it goes, it was left open ended. I think it was still very highly romantic. Um, oh, the, yeah. can we talk he, about the pond scene? <laughs> that <laughs> was. Oh. Whoo, 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 whoo. Like, I'm mostly straight. I, I don't think anyone's truly straight. I'm like mostly straight, <laughs> and I'm just like. Yep, I'm gonna need to take a break right now. Well, it's it's very beautiful. <laughs> like like both my soul and my body are quivering. <laughs> well, what if if you noticed um, at the end of that scene where they're both floating, Aster has Ellie's outer shirt on. So you know she was wearing the long sleeve shirt and then the outer like sort of stripy short sleeve mm-hmm. t shirt. So mm-hmm. Aster is wearing that t shirt at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she is. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I, I think even though Aster had some, a little bit of character development as far as like being able to meet Ellie halfway, I, I definitely wanted more from her. Um, not not at any sort of like, look, the movie was like the perfect length, but like, this is why I want like a sequel. Um, but also, I'm okay with it not having a sequel. I'd like to kind of have them live on in my uh, imagination, and that hopefully they're all changed, but you know, better for having this friendship. What do you think yeah. happens to all of them past this <sighs> movie? So Ellie goes to school. She goes to college. She goes to Grimmel, which is a liberal she, arts. And she says she's coming back in two years. Was that what what she said when she kissed? I'll Aster? see you in two years. Yeah. yeah. She said few. I think I think she said a few oh, maybe years. Okay. Whenever yeah. it takes her to graduate, I guess. I can see her completing it pretty quickly. But the other thing is this: like, so I would love to say because did they confirm whether or not Aster like actually broke it off with Trig because she had first accepted him until the big church scene? I I think her. Trying to get into art school is mm. an implication that she's not. She's going moving on. To. Like she's gonna, yeah. And then, so I would love it. Like I don't necessarily think again that they, Aster and Ellie need to get together. Um, it's far too early in both of their knowledge, and like who knows if Aster is actually by or anything. Like she's been so much in, like you know, fulfilling her the expectations you know put upon her that i don't think she knows exactly who she is yet um so yeah go to school and figure it out first i think they both end up in new york and are in some sort of artistic circle like she's a writer and aster's an artist and they somehow meet up because i think you know like you know like any 
underrepresented community, you find your tribe right wherever you are. So they're going to find each other. And they're like, oh, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Like, yeah. And then they just fall in love and get married and have like four kids. <laughs> I could definitely see them as part of like an artist collective, like in a big loft or something like that. I, mm. I still just don't know. Um, I think maybe that's where I get the feeling that I'm not sure if I knew enough about Aster. Um, because I don't know what she was attracted to except for the person she thought she was attracted to and whether or not she like, you know, we saw the, you know, the subtext in the pawn scene. But I don't know. Maybe it was because we knew about Ellie, but I don't know. I mean, I think for her, it's realizing that like because her entire her her character initially was like someone who is trying to fulfill like, like you said, fulfill someone else's expectation of her as like the hot girl right she has hot girl problems where (laughs) she can't break out like it's so hard being hot because people expect me to be a certain way right um but then you know through ellie like ellie helps her realize that her there's more to desire that there's more to want out of a relationship and with friendship and just out of life i also think anytime if you're in high school if you're that age or you're trying to find yourself and you feel weird in all different ways and you're just into something like whether it's a like any piece of culture or pop culture, a movie, books, writing that other kids aren't into, it can be kind of lonely. Like you, no one really gets you, and you feel like you don't really have anyone to talk to. And I think that's something that drew Ellie and Aster together. Right? They have this intellectual bond. They're talking about art and what makes great art, and you know. Ishiguro, Ishiguro right yeah and like like you know really kind of like very intellectual stuff which i was like do high school kids really talk like this because i was not this eloquent in high school <laughs> like that is some like grade a you know weren't you speech and debate though weren't you nfl yeah but those <laughs> kids have like it's not about the writing in speech and debate or um you know but it's like a drama kid and you know there was there's stuff that like my drama friends were into that my non-drama friends just didn't get. They were very supportive. <laughs> They'd come see you on my shows. Speaking of writing, I think what this movie really drove home to me is the lost art of letter writing. Which I wondered about. <laughs> First of all, I love letters, but um, I wonder about like if people are trying it out now because something. Although I haven't been doing that, like letters, letters. I have been sending greeting cards. And part of it is mm. to support the post office. And um, and also because I keep buying 99 cent Trader Joe's greeting cards <laughs> because they're great and they're 99 cents. And so I just keep going there whenever and then just I buy like three or four at a time. And there's just way too many. I have way too <laughs> many backlog. But yeah, I, and but I love being able to address and stamp something and put my return address. And I remember doing that back in the day and enjoying doing that. So I'm just like, I wonder if letter writing will be a thing because I don't know if you saw, um, but uh, with uh, Lulu Wong and um, Barry Jenkins, but there was a really cute thing where she had a typewriter. And so she decided to type him a letter, even though he's right in the same room with her. And so he like (laughs) screenshotted it. And it was super cute. It was so sweet. And there's definitely something about having to pause and think about what you want to write because you can't, you know, just delete it. Um, and especially when you're typing. And so there's a sort of an, like a, a, a weighted permanence to your words. Um, but yeah, so I, w- I would love it if like letter writing came back in some sort of form. I mean, okay, first, Lulu Wong and Barry Jenkins are just like unattainable, cute yes, Hollywood girls. They're unattainable relationship goals. If they do, yeah, if they ever break up, love is dead. It doesn't exist. Why even? They're try, also both like right? really incredible artists who are able to articulate <laughs> complex thoughts about right. life and love. <laughs> so we can't. That's my. See, that's, if that's the bar, Han. You're setting it too high. No, we, that, we can just reach to there, but we're not going to get there. So. That's yeah. That's my second point. Is if I were to write a letter in this day and age, it would sound just like Paul's very bad letter <laughs> that he originally wrote. I can't remember what he said, but it was so bad. I just remember <laughs> on his first on their first in person day, he's like, "I like Nazis. I would like Nazis, or I would like more Nazis." And we're like, "Paul, 
No. How about the Nazis? No, but no. Um, but I did love that through the movie, you start with letters, then you move on to texting. And then at the very end, you get emojis. And it's like, is this actually a movie about the de-evolution of our communication skills? Uh, you sound like an old person, Marvin. I believe that emojis can very accurately depict a variety of feelings in much simpler or if the pe- caterpillar was pretty smart looking well i look <laughs> i think it's more about like using every avenue of communication at your disposal and it just so happens that she understands that paul uses emojis as part of his love language and so she finally accepts that and decides, okay, let's you know give you the smart emoji. Um, but you know, but <laughs> that was at the same time when she was talking to Aster about it, and she she was like, yeah, I kind of figured something was up because you know you weren't sending me emojis, and she's like, should I have sent you emojis like of a sausage or something? And they're like, no. <laughs> no. So it clearly would have almost tipped her off that it was something was like off. So I yeah, I I love emojis actually. I love adding emojis i'm on slack also like i'm on everything that and i will get emojis from other places and put them in like spreadsheets and things places that normally you don't have emojis um because i think it enhances whatever your words are yeah i'm still stuck in the um like the ascii like the way we emoted when we used aim so it's the oh, um, like, dash like, underscore oh, dash oh wow you yeah. old school <laughs> Maybe it's because you have an Android and their emojis aren't as cute. I mean, some of them are really cute. I I like how, well, or at least I like how I can, like, most places do this now. You can change the ethnicity of your emoji person, like, right? Uh, <laughs> I'd like to think it's because I'm an intellectual, like, <laughs> like Ellie. Ellie. Who, but know. Ellie eventually came <laughs> around, so that's the thing. What did you all think about the Cyrano, like plot here i am always a fan of a high school adaptation of a classic film what's your give favorite? me oh i love i have a soft spot for she's the man which is the yes. adaptation of 12th night and of course 10 things i hate Ten about things. you and clueless which oh clueless yes uh, we've, we've talked about this many times before but <laughs> yes, no but any anytime Anytime you can put a classic, kind of stodgy old story, put it in a high school setting, modern it up, make it a little more ethnic, I'm there. I love how this movie like is really all about like the power of friendship too. Like the burgeoning friendship between Paul and Ellie not only helps both of them grow, like it helps Ellie become more, I guess, comfortable in her own skin. Um, helps Paul not only become like more thoughtful. Um, but also stronger because he's able to run for more because, you know, the progression of the movie, he starts off as a guy who runs out of breath really quickly. And then he becomes like the only person to score a touchdown in the entire school's history. Yeah. I just love the fact that this is a love story that's not just about romantic love. I do think our culture is obsessed with romantic love, and I'm very guiltily a part of that as well. But to have like especially like a teen movie that's directed hopefully towards, you know, younger audience and showing them that I, I wonder if I would have been less into stories of romantic love and like obsessive about it if I had grown up with more nuanced takes on it as opposed to growing up with good movies, very, you know, great, you know, but like, you know, I think a, a certain age, a certain millennial age, the ones who grew up on like the Disney princess films, I think those honestly like <laughs> fucked us up quite a bit. Definitely gave me an inaccurate depiction of how your hair behaves in different environments. <laughs> Probably gave me some weird hangups about what romantic love should be. And it takes a while to unlearn that. So, yeah, I think that's what yeah. goes with a lot of people, actually, who feel like they want the big romance. And once it gets comfortable, they're like, oh, I'm not in love anymore. And I'm like, well, actually, that's probably where it starts. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I agree. I love the rom-coms as we and we've discussed this many times before. But I, I think that's also probably why I liked the dramas also, because they definitely tempered my expectations about things and definitely foreign films are really good about like not showing perfection um and rom-coms so yeah no you know what messed me up titanic messed me up because i thought jack dawson was (laughs) like i mean leonardo dicaprio in titanic is peak leonardo dicaprio 
But thinking about it now as an adult woman, I was like, if a guy with zero money, no plans that you met on a boat three days ago was like, let's go, girl. I'd be like, no, who are you? Get away from me. (laughs) Well, let us know what you thought about the film. Um, You can follow the Good Pop Culture Club on Twitter at Good Pop Club um, and let us know what you think. And with that, I guess that'll also do it for this episode. Um, Han, Jess, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this amazing film by Alice Wu. Hopefully we'll see a lot more of her Yes, let's hope it's not another 16 years until the next (laughs) film. Because she's too good to be, she's too good for that. I feel like now that she's in with Netflix, Netflix isn't going to let her go. So I'm looking Mm. forward to whatever the next thing is. And I think it will be pretty quick. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining us. As always, if you enjoy what you hear, you can subscribe to us on all your favorite podcatchers. Um, We're a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts, um, including great shows like They Call Us Bruce, Saturday School, the Korean Drama Podcast, and more. Um, You can find out more about our fellow Potluck Podcasts by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time on Good Pop. Steve? What's going on? Tell me, what do you know about K-dramas? Oh, um, they have something to do with the drama that comes from K-cup coffee pots, because you know they're bad for the environment? Uh, No. Oh, you mean Korean dramas? Yeah, I know that they are very grounded in reality. No, that's actually the opposite of what happens. It it sounds like you don't know anything about K-dramas. Yeah, I was just guessing. That's actually perfect. Remember Will, Phil, and Joanna did that Korean drama podcast? Yeah, they saw Boys Over Flowers. Yes, and people apparently listen to it and want another season. But Will and Phil are still recovering from that season. Oh my god, are they okay? I did hear they tried to give themselves amnesia. Oh, is that a K-drama thing? Yeah, pretty much. So, are you guys down to help out with the new season of the Korean drama podcast? So we're going to be watching a K-drama this time? Which one? Secret Garden from 2010. It was a big hit. And if you're down, check out the Korean Drama Podcast at koreandramapod.com. Kaja! Am I going to see sauna towel buns?